Well, good morning. It's great to be here post-Christmas, isn't it? Wonderful to hear the report in from uh, the Christ family. The Christ boy at Christmas Eve. That's pretty good. <laughs> great to have the, the McAtees here. Uh, retired missionaries from Indonesia, served there for 32 years. And we always honor those who, and especially honor the God, who would call them to be on mission in uh, countercultural places, the other side of the world, where Christianity is in direct confrontation with other worldviews. And uh, it's great to have you, you here today. It's always great to, to see Jerry's mom. What a treat to see her. And I hope Scott's having a great time in Memphis. I understand he's in Memphis where he grew up. And hopefully he's enjoying his buttermilk biscuits and his uh, Memphis barbecue. And, uh, um, and he did ask me to do one thing before I started. I'm to ask Marilyn Appleby if she has put her cell phone on vibrate today. Scott said it's important that I say that since, believe it or not, she forgot the other. So that, that noise you heard a couple of weeks ago was Marilyn. And why our youngest daughter was calling during worship beats me. But, uh, this morning, I, I have two scriptures that I want us to uh, look at together. <clears throat> and one of them is the very first book in the Bible, which will be Genesis, the very first chapter. And if you're, you've got a study Bible, sometimes it's the hardest place to find because of all the stuff in the beginning there. But uh, Genesis chapter 1, I want us to uh, put our fingers in that place. And those of you who are ambidextrous, I also would like you to turn to Romans 8, the eighth chapter of Romans, one of the great chapters in all the Bible, one of my very favorites. I did want to get Genesis 1 also. We could could find everything I'm going to say this morning in Romans 8, but Genesis 1 provides a very important verse. And um, Data mentioned what I'd like for us to reflect on together for the next two Sundays. Um, Back in 1982, in the fall, a football game was played in Madison, Wisconsin, between the University of Wisconsin Badgers and the Michigan State Spartans. Now, Wisconsin was down in football that year, and, and so the home team was just getting trampled on. Michigan State was running up and down the field. By, by halftime, uh, the game was for all intents and purposes over, but they had to finish it anyway. And so the third quarter began, and here went Michigan State marching down the field for yet another score. And then all of a sudden, apparently, inexplicably, a huge roar rocked the stadium, even though... Uh, most of the fans there were getting beaten soundly. And so to understand what was happening, one had to lift their perspective to a, a larger vision of what was going on rather than what was just in front of, the, of them that day. And, and what was going on was happening about 75 miles east on uh, Interstate 94, where the Milwaukee Brewers were playing the St. Louis Cardinals in the third game of the World Series, and they had just won. To go up two games to one, eventually, sorry, Dave, they were to win the World Series over the Cardinals that year. And so on the surface, it appeared that that this was an unfortunate season for Wisconsin sports fans. The Packers weren't doing so hot at that that particular time either. But actually, when looking at a larger from a larger perspective, it was a good year in terms of the fact that the Brewers brought home the last World Series title that they have known up to this point. 
You see, uh, a lot of things do often depend upon your perspective. And that's an important reality to keep in mind in this uh, watershed week where the train that is 2009 is about to pull into the station and we're about to uh, disembark and get on 2010 and start a new leg of the journey. Uh, Because it is an opportunity to reflect on what has just gone before us. Uh, This Thursday night, when the clock strikes midnight and it is Friday, we will have spent 8,760 hours of the most precious of all currency, the currency of time. Now, when you reach my juncture in life, Sam, right, that's a lot of time that we just we just expended and it's gone. We can't get it back. Or can we? Well, there is one way that we can get it back. And that is if instead of watching all 47 bowl games and all of the the TV programs that will reflect on the year just passed, if we would intentionally draw aside and conduct sort of a careful inventory of our lives, how did we spend the currency of time in 2009? And the way we could get it back is to do so with the purpose of mining it for its treasures, learning from it so that we can invest it in a more fruitful and fulfilling 2010. That's the only way. And it is the one thing I'm going to advocate for this morning that somehow I can I can uh, cause you to think about spending some time reflecting carefully on the year that has just passed. But now in order to do that, you've got to have a larger perspective. Or you'll kind of be like the hound dog, you know, who picked up a scent and started following his scent with nose to the ground for 25 miles. He went through some of the most beautiful countryside scenery without observing any of it because his nose was to the ground following the scent until he finally ended up staring down a gopher hole. And it is possible for us. To just be so locked in on what is the immediate circumstance in front of us without the help of a larger perspective, we cannot mine the treasures of this past year and we'll be staring down gopher holes. So what are the spectacles that you're going to put on or I guess spectacles that you're going to put on in order to get a grander vision of your life so that you may mine the treasures of the year just past and make no mistake about it. The problems and the pain can be treasures if understood with the right perspective as you prepare for the coming year. And certainly there are things that you could celebrate before you turn and move into 2010. Most of us are here this morning because we believe that biblical Christianity is the great story that brings meaning into our little stories. Or we're here thinking about that. And so this morning, for a few moments, I want us to put on the spectacles of the scriptures and see what they might tell us about our reflection upon the year that we have just lived. And that's where we're going to refer this morning to the scriptures that I've asked you to turn to. And there's some questions that we want to ask just a couple that will help us in this reflection. 
based on a larger vision of life. And the first question is this. I want you to spend some time over this uh, this week thinking about your origins. Now, I mean, the original origins. How in the world did you get here? Why are you here? And you say, well, that's a rather that's a rather, uh, you know, kind of a, a otherworldly kind of reflection that I don't know is really worth wasting my time on. I'm here after all. But actually, it's very important to think back upon why we are on this planet. Because the most fundamental question that we all encounter from our very earliest years throughout the rest of our days is the question of our identity. Where do I find my identity? Who am I really? And what is my worth? Where do I find a sense of self-worth? And we will deal with that the rest of our days. And there are people who literally have thrown their lives away trying to find an answer to that question. So how, why are you here? Are you here because you are an accidental uh, collision of atoms? Happenstance, a random pro- product of, of purely naturalistic, mechanistic processes? Or are you intentionally crafted by the Creator and therefore your life has meaning and value? Well, what do the Scriptures say about that? They address this a lot, but they address it right away in the very first place that you and I are mentioned in the Bible. And that is the first chapter of Genesis. So let's look for a moment at Genesis chapter 1 and hang around Genesis long enough for us to get through another chapter. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the beautiful and simple description in the Word of God as to how the cosmos came into being. And we find these these six creative days. God is at work in each day. And at the end of that day, as he has, has designed a part of his cosmos and brought it into being on that day, he reflects on it. And the scripture says that God saw it was good. He said, this is good. And then the next day comes and he creates some more. And again, he says, as he reflects upon it, this is good. And then we come to the sixth creative day. And God, we we find out, is all about bringing humankind into existence. And so we pick up with verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply in number and take care of the earth. Now, in that passage, what does it say about your origins? It says you, uniquely of all creation, are created in the image of God. You're given a special job assignment by him. You are the crowning glory of the all creation. And so we come down to verse 31. And whereas to this point, God has said after each created day, it is good. Now that humankind has been added to the creative equation, God looks and he says, this is very good. So the scriptures tell us that you are not here by accident. You are crafted by the creator and you find your meaning and value in him. Your identity is grounded in God. Now, if the reverse is true, if you are 
and I are here because of a chance collision of atoms, there is absolutely no basis for viewing that we have any unique meaning and value as humankind. None. Now, we can't live that way. That's why many people say that even if we we say we do not believe in God, that we really do, we have just repressed that knowledge. Because when we try to live in the lower story of our lives without God in our lives, we, we just find that we've got to creep upstairs to the upper story and, and borrow meaning and value from God. But we want to creep back downstairs because we don't acknowledge God in our lives. And, of course, that doesn't work. And it creates what has been called a cut flower civilization. You know, you take a flower and all of its beauty and, and you, you snip it from its roots. And the moment you do that, it begins to die and the, the beauty fades away. And our beauty as humankind is found in the creator. And when we sever ourselves from him, the beauty fades and it eventually dies away. But you do not have to put your brains in neutral to believe that God created you and I. I mean, um, you look at the world around us and there are clues all around us that point to the fact that this created world was brought into being in expectation that you and I would finally arrive. In fact, I, there is a book by Francis Collins, who is the, the director of the Human Genome Pro- Project, who, who as a scientist, as he, he studied his craft, came to the unavoidable conclusion that God is. And then that led him to an evangelical faith through a commitment to Christ. And he has written a book called The Language of God. And in there, he says that there are at least 15 constants of the world of physics that have exact values, which if they they were either side of that that norm of that constant, then you and I could not exist in this this planet. And he says as if God was preparing the way for the crowning glory of his creation. You know, now the odds that that's by chance. If you're into odds, it's something like a trillion to one. Now, I can't even I can't even fathom numbers of that. So so I've looked around for it for an illustration of just of, of, of the, the the chance of us coming here by chance. And and I ran across a description of being in an old Wild West poker game. Can you imagine you're in the Deadwood Saloon, you know, the saloon in Deadwood, South Dakota, where Wild Bill Hick, Hickok met his fate with a shot in the back during a poker game. And you and I are in a poker game in, in, the, in the saloon in Deadwood, South Dakota, and this uh, glib stranger rides into town. And he talks us into playing poker with him. And so we sit out with him and we, we find him dealing himself 15 consecutive poker hands of all four aces. Now, about the time that that happens, we've all reached for our six shooters and we're pointing them right at his nose. And he throws up his hands. He says, wait a minute. I know this looks suspicious, but this is entirely by accident. And there is that infinitesimal possibility that he did that by accident, but it sure looks to me more like it is the work of intentional design. And when you take the constants in in the physical world that are exactly right so that you and I could arrive on this planet... That certainly smacks less of the possibility of accident and more of intentional design. 
And then add to that the uh, human DNA of which Collins was the expert of the 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 irreducible complexity of the eye and the chemistry of the blood. And so many of factors of of the wonders of, of human physiology is that it is as if the creator was putting the exclamation mark on his actions and bringing people of infinite worth into existence. And then add to that the deep longing in every human heart for someone and something far beyond the things of this world. And they all point to the designer who created someone of great value to live in intimate fellowship with him. So what is your worth this morning? Why are you here? Is it grounded in the creator? As you reflect on this transitional week. Do you know how much you matter to God? And on what are you building your sense of self-worth? Where do you find your identity? That's a great question to ask in this week that can be mined for untold riches in living life more fruitfully and fulfillingly this year. You know, what were the preoccupations of your mind in this past year? What were the projects of your life? Where did you invest your hours? Where was God in all this? Who got the best parts of your life and who got the leftovers? And all of those are clues as to where we are trying to find our identity. And if our identity is in anything other than the creator as revealed in the Christ. Then we have made an idol of that no matter how good it may be. And it cannot sustain a life of meaning for very long. And so if your identity is in your job, if your identity is in your your wins, your identity is in your achievements, it's in the approval of others. It's even in family. If you are depending even upon your family to find a sense of worth in this world, no object short of the creator can stand that kind of responsibility. You are loved this morning. And as we do this inventory together this week, begin there. Where have I found my identity in 2009? And in light of the larger vision of the word of God, what can I do about that in 2010? Now, if you do that kind of inventory, there are probably going to be some things in your life, if you're like me, where you acted in ways that were disappointed, disappointing or circumstances were disappointing. And what do you do with that? Oh, you lived in a world in 2009 which certainly does not honor its creator. And this is a planet which does not lift up in many ways human value and dignity. What do you do with the distressing and the disappointing and the difficult in your own life and around you? Now, if you you have a view of life that is short of the scriptures, there's not much of hope. To be authored. You know, it, it does appear, we keep hoping at least, that, that humankind can solve their problems. But we don't. No matter who is in political power, no matter what programs we are trying to institute, no matter what resolutions we make every New Year's, most of us may have given up on those because we simply do not change. 
I remember the readings that came out of the turn of the century moving into the 20th century in which there was great optimism and the belief that mankind was progressing, that we were getting better, that we were evolving into something a little better than what we were in the past and that we were going to solve our problems in the 20th century. What happened in the first half of the 20th century? Two world wars, a great depression. And the same intellectuals who were writing about how good man was suddenly were in despair and wringing their hands and wondering, is there any hope for the planet? And certainly, as we entered into the 21st century, things have not gotten any better in terms of solving the basic problems that afflict the culture. And the Bible tells us why. The Bible is the one worldview that really fits the facts the best. And so we come to Genesis chapter 3 before we leave Genesis. What has happened to this point? You know, you have the whole stage set for the entire Bible in the first three chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1, we are the crowning glory of God's creation. He created us intentionally and our meaning and value are in Him. Genesis 2 tells us how much our Father loves us. He creates the institution of marriage that a man and a woman may may know the joys of of physical intimacy upon life at every level. And and then he puts us in the Garden of Eden that we may know the joy of intimate fellowship with the creator himself. Evidently, we can't handle all that. God gives us one restriction and we cannot trust God enough with that matter of the tree. And we immediately disobey the one law we have. That's called sin. And at the root of sin is the fact that we we just simply have to have absolute autonomy. And we have to be the gods of our own lives. And the ends thereof are always the ways of death. And so God comes calling and he says, Adam, where are you? In verse nine. Now, do you think God knew where Adam was and where Eve was? He asked that question to make sure they knew he knew where they were and they knew where they were and they were hiding because they had sinned. And sin is a reality. And the problem with sin is that little that middle letter of that little word, the letter I. A newspaper columnist Rutz wrote a Rutz wrote an editorial and asked what is wrong with the world and. G.K. Chesterton, the great Christian thinker, wrote back and he said, Dear editor, what's wrong with the world? I am. Or as Pogo, a cartoonist, a cartoon character of my day when I was younger, said, We have met the enemy and he is us. We are the enemy. The problem with the world is you and me and our sin as we seek to become the gods of our own lives. Now, there are consequences to sin, and that is really bad news. But something has been done about it, and that is really good news. And so if your eyes follow down Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, what do you read there? In the midst of the dire consequences that our sin produces, it says the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, what's so significant about that? This is a very early indication of how much our father loves us. The Bible says there is a basic moral rule that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so God sheds the blood of an animal to provide covering for these wayward children. 
to indicate his deep desire to pay the penalty of our sins and to draw us back into fellowship with him. So you'll see as followers of Jesus Christ, if the spectacles you put on through which you live and view your world are the biblical gospel, then you have a place to go. With the difficulties and the disappointments and the despair in you and also around you. As someone once said to a Christian friend, I envy you Christians. You have somewhere to go with your guilt and with your sins and with your failures. And because God has provided a way through Christ. First Peter chapter three says Jesus suffered the just for the unjust. To bring us to God. We can come to him. So with those those disappointing ways in your life this past year. Can you own up to them? Can you take them to the father? Can you put him in his hands and learn from them, repent of them and turn from them and go forward in Christ? Can you fail forward into the new year? That's one of the wonderful gifts that the gospel gives to you and me. And for the disappointments that are all around you, what do you do with those? Here's where I want you to look at Romans chapter 8. One of the most beloved verses in the Bible. Romans 8, 28. What does it say? It says that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed To the likeness of his son. Now, what does that scripture say as we reflect on the year and the the disappointing ways and the disappointing circumstances in our lives? Can you believe that God is at work in everything that happens to you as his child and that his purpose, if your purpose is to follow, to love and to glorify him, his purpose is to conform your character after the character of his son And that he wastes absolutely nothing that happened to you in this year. He's working to redeem it to make you more like Christ. So as you reflect this year, what do you do with the disappointments and the difficulties? Can you hinge upon the forgiveness of God and stand upon his redemptive work in the midst of the challenges of your life? And now one last question. We've talked about origins as you reflect this, this, this week on, on your life, that you may mine it for its treasures to launch a more fruitful and fulfilling new year. What about your endings? What about your destination? I mean, where is my life headed? Where is all of life headed? Is there any future to look forward to in, in hope? Will justice prevail and yet enough mercy be there to cover my flaws, my failures and my sins? Is there a resolution to look forward to in this life? And and Romans chapter eight deals with that in a very compelling way. You might take a moment to read this week, verses uh, 18 through 25. And in essence, for time's sake, I'll just uh, say. Capsulized for it. In essence, it says that the whole cosmos has been impacted by our sin. But God is at work through his son. And he is going to restore and redeem all of humanity and all of his creation. Romans says that even the created order groans. It has been impacted by our sin. That's why the world is like it is. 
ultimately, but it will be renewed and restored at the return of Jesus Christ. God will fulfill his purposes in you and me. There is a future for us in Christ. It belongs to God. And we have the assurance that that for which we longed for, that nothing of this world can fill, will ultimately be ours in God's new eternal kingdom. We will be home at last. Now, if I believe in the future in the hands of God, then I can face the present. I can I can inventory my life and be honest about it without remorse and regret and forge forward in the future without fear. Because God is in control. Uh, Several weeks ago, Scott mentioned the born identity and had a very clever use of that 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 uh, title. Of course, the born series, Jason Bourne and all all the series out of that character are are works of Robert Ludlam, who is the master of espionage suspense fiction in in, in America. He's been he's been uh, keeping Americans on the edge of their seats for decades. And when Scott mentioned the born identity, I thought about a magazine article that I'd read several years ago where a businessman said that he had he wrote into to, I think it was Reader's Digest. This sounds like one of their uh, anecdotes. He wrote into the, to the magazine and he shared an experience where he went to a, a conference on the West Coast, traveled all the way from the East Coast where he lived. And there he attended a convention. He networked. He he learned more about his craft. And as is the case, it's a long and tiring week. You know, some people think you go to convention and you just rest and, you know, it's an easy, easy, but it's not always that way. And so finally he boards his plane to go back from the West Coast to the East Coast, bone tired. He also knows he's going to arrive three hours later. He's going to lose sleep right away. And he's thinking about how weary he's going to be on the next day when he has to go back to work. So he gets on board for the first leg of his flight. He immediately goes to sleep, snoozes all the way to a stopover point in the Midwest. Well, he wakes up and the plane is going to be there a few minutes and he needs to stretch his legs. So he gets out and he wanders around the concourse, you know, gets him a latte or something. And then it's time to to reboard. So he stops by a gift shop and he purchases the latest Robert Ludlum book because now he's going to need to stay awake for the rest of the flight. So that he can sleep that night. So he gets back in his seat. Plane takes off. He opens the book. And immediately he's lost in a world of suspense and espionage. And the flight is just whizzing by. He knows that this book is thick. He's only got a couple hours left in the flight. He's going to have to read fast. He's already hooked. He's got to hurry up and finish the book because the suspense is just killing him already. So he is reading rapidly and then sort of hears this voice overhead that says we are an hour away from our destination. You know, and he's chapters away from the end of the book. So he's reading faster. The suspense is building as he's going to try to race the airplane and to get through with the story. Far, far too soon, he hears the the flight attendant come back on and say, we are beginning our descent. You need to clean up all the trash around you and restore your tray tables and your seats to the upright position. And he heaves a sigh, sticks his business card in the book, lays it down, cleans up the trash around him. And then he picks his book up back again. He's dived back into the world of espionage, reading fast as he can. Unfortunately, they are announcing we are landing. Get ready. 
and he's still got chapters to go. So they hit the, the, the landing field and he keeps reading. They taxi toward the jetway. He's reading more furiously. But finally, the lights come on and the signal sounds and it's time to unfasten your seatbelts, get up and deplane. And he still has a chapter left. So he heaves a big sigh, rips the last chapter out of his book, drops the rest in the pocket seat in front of him and deplanes. He can hardly wait to get to the taxi. And on the way home, he finishes the book. He arrives bone tired, but satisfied because the the plot lines have been fulfilled. The story is resolved. He can go to sleep knowing how everything turned out. So he's in a deep sleep of a very tired man when all of a sudden the phone rings in the middle of the night. He fumbles for the phone. He he finally finds it. He he sticks it to his ear and it's about to say hello. And the voice on the other side side says, quick, I'm reading your book and the last chapter is missing. For heaven's sake, how does it all turn out? (laughs) And we know how it turns out. We've read the last chapter. God is in control. He is redemptively at work in our lives. We have that hope in Jesus Christ. And so working back to this moment in time, we can embrace our challenges. We can confess our sins. We can ask for his help. We can celebrate our victories and we can forge forward in the future with faith with renewed commitment to our Savior, because we know God is in control. Now, do you believe that? If so, what is God asking you to do about it right now? Now, this is a week when we continue to try to live in the afterglow of Christmas. It is also a week when more suicides occur than any other time of the year, Many people are affected by seasonally affected depression. This is a difficult week as for some reason people began to think more about the disappointments of their lives. But it's also a week when we get along with God and we can reflect. And rather than losing those 8,760 hours, we can mine them for everything they're worth, even the disappointments. In the new beginnings that God offers to us. Will you do that? I want us to bow for a moment of reflection. As we prepare to move toward the time when we worship through giving. That's the time when we turn those cards in. And uh, be sure and write down anything on that. That you want to know. That you want prayed about. Or a next step commitment you want to make. Could it be that the Father has you here to remind you that He has intentionally crafted you and He is at work in your life? Now, don't race through the end of the year. Throw that page of the counter into the trash can and then dash off into a new one without having reflected, without having mined it for all of its treasure. Put on the spectacles of the Word of God and look at your life through the bigger picture. You may forge forward in the future through faith in Christ. 
Father, we we come to the close of this service. We thank you for the the report that the the Chris family shared. We thank you for the the hope we have that we sang about this morning. We thank you for your word, which is the lamp unto our feet and the light of our path. Uh, Spirit of God, don't let us miss the opportunity to respond by giving our lives to you. So now this morning, if you need to embrace the Savior, what a gift, what an opportunity to say yes to Christ today. What's that next step if you know the Savior that he's calling you to make?